0: Good morning, uh, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. Uh, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Second Peter. We're gonna uh, quickly be looking at Second Peter this morning. Second Peter chapter one. And if you don't have a Bible on you this morning, if you throw your hand up, we have people who would love to get a Bible in your hand so you can open up, have it on your lap, follow along as we walk through the verses this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring a Bible, you forgot a Bible, please put your hand up. If you don't own a Bible, for sure get your hand up and take one of these home as our gift to you so you have your own copy of God's Word, and as you turn there, if if this is your first time here at Harvest, uh, welcome. We're uh, the second sermon into a series where we're asking these hard questions. We're asking the hard questions of of Christianity. Maybe they're questions that you have, that you've wrestled with a little bit. Maybe they're questions that that your neighbors have, or that your family and friends have, And, and we want to spend time over these next few weeks unpacking these questions, Questions like, if God's so good and powerful, what's with all the pain and suffering in the world? If, if God's so loving, how could he send people to hell? What about science? Hasn't science just pretty much just proved everything spiritual? Or, or why does God care so much about sex? Why so many commandments about, about marriage and, and what about same-sex attraction? Like, what does the Bible really say about that? And we're going to talk about these things in this series. And, and this morning, we're jumping into another big question that needs to be asked. And, and, and we're going to keep asking these questions. And, and the one this morning is this, how can a Christian entrust their whole life to this ancient book? Like, like, can we really trust the Bible? Is it really reliable? And it's such an important question because the Christian life requires a faith in the Bible. The Christian life requires us to say, this word is authoritative. It's true. Now, now, Jesus in Luke uh, chapter 24, he's walking with these, these guys along this road and, and Jesus had just died and rose again. They didn't know that he rose again and he's walking and them. They're pretty discouraged and they're pretty downcast because this Messiah that they were following, well, he was just killed. They're like, man, we, we had our hope in this guy and, and, and now, now the, the Romans and our own leaders put him to death and they're pretty down and Jesus walking with them says to this to them in, in Luke 24, he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And what was Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, listen, didn't you read the word? Didn't you hear all the things that were said about me in the word? And Jesus saying, listen, I'm saying that this is true and authoritative. And so every Sunday, I begin every single Sunday morning the exact same way. Saying the exact same words. I start every Sunday saying, hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles? You notice I don't say, hey, why don't you go ahead and and grab your copy of Time magazine? Hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your penny saver and let's sort of see what's going right now? Because those things aren't authoritative in our life. We believe that God can speak through what we call general revelation, that you can be sitting out on the dock looking out at the stars at night and say, man, there is a God. But in order to know who God is, in order to know who God is not, in order to know the details about God and about ourselves and about what it means to follow after him, we need the details of God's word. So we need to ask, is this book actually reliable? See, because skeptics will come along and say, no, no, this thing was just made up by a bunch of dudes. And, and it, well, it may have started out okay, but years went on and, and people just added stuff to it and created this mythology that we read today. It's, it's, it's outdated, it's old, it's, it's culturally regressive, it's, it's, it isn't really reliable, it's full of contradictions, you can't trust it. Have you heard this? Maybe you've asked these. Here's the thing, the questions aren't new though. <clears throat> Look at verse, uh, verse 12 of, of 2 Peter chapter one. Peter's writing this letter to these, these, these churches and he's saying this, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in truth that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, hey you guys know the truth of who Jesus is. And he says, I, I, I know that my time on earth is coming to an end. Jesus predicted that he would die. He says, I know that's coming. And so before I leave this earth, I want to make sure that everything's clear for you. Then look at verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, we weren't just making this thing up. This isn't just myths and creation, little ideas that we create. This isn't just a story we're telling. What's he saying? We were eyewitnesses. We saw it. There's a belief that that the gospel is just these, these myths made up by you ever, you know, the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown. No, no, Constantine made it all up because he wanted to gain more power, so, so he changed everything, right? And he edited the Bible. Why? Because if he made Jesus powerful, he could become powerful. So what do we want to do? Let's jump in. Let's look with, with logic, with reason, to see, is, is the Bible full of myths? Is it reasonable to doubt the authenticity of this book. So, so let's not let's not check our mind at the door when we come in here. Let's not say, well, you know what? I mean, I took a year of philosophy in university, man. Like my prof told me, the Bible's a bunch of missiles, So that's what it, no, no, let's come in with a with this open mind to say, I want to really dig into this. I, you know, I saw Discovery Channel, man. They played something at Easter that told me about Jesus, he didn't really raise from the dead. And no, let's let's dig in, let's ask the right questions. And begin to ask this, not do I need faith to believe the Bible, we do, but how about this, is it reliable, is it reasonable to say the Bible can be trusted? So the first question we have to ask is this, it's, is the Bible an accurate text? Is the Bible an accurate text? What do I mean by that? Just a few things we want to talk about here. Well, the first is this, well, what about all the contradictions? Maybe you've heard that. What, what about all the places where there's these contradictions? And I, I love that. When I get into a group of people and, and people say, hey, man, the Bible's so full of contradictions. And my, my first response is, well, which ones? Well, I don't know, but I know they're in there, right? There are some that you read and go, man, that, that doesn't make sense. And maybe you read through the Gospels and you read in Matthew, it says that, that Judas died because he hung himself. Then you get to that book of Acts, and all of a sudden Luke, writing the book of Acts, says that when Judas died, he fell on these rocks and his guts, his guts burst open all over the rocks. Walking to church, sorry to gross you out, right? That's <laughs> Well, which is it? Did he hang himself? or It's it's a contradiction. Look at that. The Bible is full of that. It, It doesn't line up. And listen, not two different stories, but two different viewpoints. If I were to say to you, hey, I just saw an accident out front and a pedestrian was killed by a car, but then you talk to the doctor in the hospital and that doctor would say, hey, here are the injuries that killed them. So you've got this, this account of Judas uh, so torn up inside about betraying Jesus, he hangs himself, and then Luke, who actually is a physician, Luke the physician, tells the, the details of what happened. What had, was he cut down from the rope and fell onto the rocks after his body, you could think, in the sun hanging, right? Pretty bloated, boom, right? Or did the branch break, did the rope fall? Luke's given the rest of the story. I was in a, a discussion group once, and uh, it was here in town, and. And we were talking about, is the Bible reliable? And I, I was the only Christian in the room, and, uh, and one guy s- did say that there's contradiction. I said, which ones? And he said, well, how about this one? In one gospel, it says that, that when Mary came to the tomb, one angel spoke to Mary. But then in another gospel, the gospel of John, it says there were two angels at the tomb. Ha ha! Is it two or is it one? I'm like, well, let's look. So we go into Matthew. I'm like, well, did Matthew say there was only one angel? No, he said one angel talked. Right, right. Did, did, did John say that, that no angel? No, John did not say no angels didn't talk. So what? Two angels, one of them spoke. <clears throat> we don't have time this morning to unpack every supposed contradiction. I'm not saying that everyone has a simple answer. There are ones that are tough. But here's what I'd like to say, let's do the homework. Let's not just check our brains and say, well, someone said that, that's what I have to believe. No, no, let's jump in and study and see, what does it really say? How can I reasonably and logically and historically look at what God's Word's saying? Now maybe say, well, okay, I'm okay with that, but what about the contradictions in how we live out the Bible? I mean, there are things in the Old Testament we don't do. I like bacon. (laughs) <laughs> Have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> no bacon, no shellfish. I wear polycotton blends. Can't do that. Old Testament says you can't. Have you heard these arguments? Like how come we're not living according to what it says? And, and it says that people with certain illnesses and, 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 and injuries can't even come into the temple. Did an usher grab you and say, hey, I got to check you out before you come in here? I hope not, Right. <laughs> So people say it's a contradiction, throw away those parts of the Bible. How do you answer that? Listen, when we read the Old Testament and you read these ceremonial laws, you see even in the Old Testament, even as they're being laid out, you can see that they're pointing away from themselves to something that's coming, something that's better than the the ceremonies. There's coming a time, you read the Old Testament, there's gonna come a time when the ceremonies would be replaced, that Jesus was coming, and his perfect life, and his death in our place, and his resurrection now comes and says, it fulfills it all. In fact, it would be unbiblical of us to go back and try to follow all the old ceremonial laws. Why? Because there's this powerful shift that happened because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Maybe maybe your struggle with Scripture would be this, okay, I, I, I'm okay at that contradiction stuff, but, but how about this one? Haven't, haven't things changed so much? Hasn't the Bible just had all these changes and additions and, and stuff to it? Aren't there all these changes all through the centuries? Maybe, can, can you even recognize maybe what the original writings would be And we understand this. Listen, the Bible is made up of 66 books by 40 different authors over thousands of years in in continents spread out. Authors who were shepherds or or authors who were kings all the way through, written in in Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic. And And a skeptic would come along and say, listen, there's no way that over time that as, as these, these original manuscripts, we don't have any original writings, you know that, right? There's, there's, no one's got a copy of Luke that's signed by Luke, right? No one's got Genesis, Moses, right? We don't have that, right? We've got copies, we know that. And, and so a skeptic would say, over the centuries, as these are being copied over and over again, they probably made changes, they probably rewrote stuff. Actually, the truth is historians hold up the Word of God, the Bible, as as unique in ancient literature in that it doesn't change. You you read about how the scribes would would make copies of Scripture and they they cared so much about the, the holy scrolls that they had. One guy wasn't just writing stuff down. One person copying letter by letter. Couldn't do it by memory. Had to have it right there. Had to do letter, then letter. While two other scribes looking over that scribe's shoulders to make sure he's doing it right. If, if, if a mistake was made, a smudge, a tear in the scroll, it would be invalidated. These guys took it seriously. They would then check it. They had a 30-day time period where they would take that scroll now and they would check it. They would read it forwards. They would read it backwards. They would measure where each letter was you see is the same letter in the middle of the scroll as it is over here. They were meticulous with this. How meticulous. Here's how meticulous they were. In 1947 near the Dead Sea in the Qumran Caves. You've heard of this probably. They found the Dead sea, these Dead Sea Scrolls, they called them. And they, they get these scrolls. They're 1,000 years earlier than the earliest manuscript they'd had. They, they pull these scrolls out, and they begin to compare now. Now, as these ancient manuscripts, a 1,000 years older than the earliest ones they had. They roll them up. They go, what are these like? Let's compare them to the stuff we have now. You know what they found? Identical nearly 100% of the time. Some spelling differences, some typos, some punctuation, but nothing of any significance to the meaning. In fact, if, if you look at the thousands of manuscripts we have today of Scripture, there's about 10,000 differences in all the manuscripts. That sounds like a lot. Okay, all but 400 of those differences are typos or or spelling differences. Like like we're in Canada, so color with a U. Right? I did a year of schooling in Nashville. I remember handing my first English paper in, and the English prof just like red marked all over. Like, man, y'all have been learned real good, right? That's what she said. No, <laughs> she didn't say that. <clears throat> okay, that was highly inappropriate. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so, so the Nashvilleians leave the room, sorry. Like, um, right, the, the, some of those kind of language translation, spelling differences, all but 400 were that. Of those 400, 40 of those were, were just sentence word order. So instead of saying something like, hey, we're saved by Jesus Christ, our Lord, it would say, we're saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, which is it? Amen, I'll take both, right? <laughs> So when you, you start to stack up all the variations where, where the sense of the passage is changed, now you have these four only 40 differences and of all of those places the number where something theologically is at stake is zero. So, so is, it, is it reasonable to say that the text we hold in our hands is reliable? I think it's illogical to say that we can't trust it. I mean, think about how amazing it is that the, the, all these thousands of copies, and you, you think about these copies spread out over time, spread out around the world, and then someone like a Dan Brown Da Vinci Code would come along and go, no, and you know what? One dude changed them. you tell me one dude, like this, this super monk, lived over 2,000 years and would run all over the world changing all the, like if that's true, worship that monk, man. Like that guy, it must be God, right? Doesn't make sense. In fact, look what Peter says in verse 21 of Second Peter 1. He says, listen, this isn't just a book written by people. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is when they wrote. It wasn't, it wasn't just people writing some ideas that they had about God. He's saying God was carrying them along. You can picture it this way, like a toddler learning to walk, and they can't quite walk yet, so mom or dad holds their hands as they walk. So who did the walking? Well, the toddler did the walking, but, but who? Well, yeah, but the, the parent kind of carried them along. right? That's, that's the writing of Scripture. That's what Peter's saying here. We would say inspired by the Holy Spirit, filled like a sail, filled with wind. They wrote this down. Not just man's ideas, but the very words of God. So, doesn't it make sense if that's the case that God would ensure they were preserved? Here's another question you might ask Okay, sure, the the original, they they might match, but are, are they historically accurate? Are they historically accurate? So let, let's not even count the number of, of contemporary historians around the time of Jesus who, who talk about Christ as a historical person. Let, let's just spend some time looking at the documents themselves. Can, can we trust the gospel accounts, these, these eyewitness accounts of Jesus? I mean, some people come to the Bible, and go, look, look, I don't believe it's supernatural, man. Like, miracles don't happen. So what do you do? You come to the Bible and you read into it going, oh, this is about a miracle, so not true. Couldn't have happened. Now, I remember as a kid hearing this, that, hey, here's how the feeding of the 5,000 really happened. When it says that Jesus came and took two loaves and a few fish and, and miraculously fed 5,000 just men, so with women and children included, who knew, maybe 20,000 people, he's feeding them all. This is what I was told. Not miraculous, Jesus just demonstrated how to share, and then everybody went, oh, and busted out their lunches and started sharing. Why would you, why would you make that up? Why would you try to cram that into the text? Because you come with the presupposition of there is no miraculous, there is no supernatural. Jesus couldn't raised from the dead. There's got to be another thing that happened. These guys couldn't have, they couldn't be telling the truth. They must be lying. They must have been duped. They must be faking it, so we need to ask, is it reasonable to come away reading this as eyewitness accounts of the gospel? When you look at the historical evidence of the lives that were changed, of of men and women who were killed, (coughs) tortured, saying, this really happened. I saw this. Listen, I agree, people will die for a lie. We see it in, in, in our world today. People will, will kill themselves for a lie and try to kill other people for that lie, but nobody's gonna die for a lie they know to be a lie. No one's gonna give their life for something that they made up, so we have to ask, okay, okay, if these are really eyewitnesses' accounts, can we trust them? Can we trust they weren't just made up? Can we, can we trust that they're accurate? And so, so what do we do? Historians come at the New Testament And they say this, historians say, this is the most attested ancient document of all time. Now, why would they say that? Why would they say that about the New Testament? Because when you're looking for the reliability of an ancient book, you look for two things. The first thing you look for is this, how many manuscripts are there? How many different copies can we find in the world? Now, why is that important? Because if I have 10 copies of something and a one comes in and it's so different from all these 10 that all say the same thing, then I go, this one must not be real. So the more you have, the more reliable you can say, this is an accurate manuscript. So you look at the number of manuscripts. The other thing you want to look at is the the length of time, from the time that it was written to when the event actually happened, and then the length of time from where the manuscripts are to the original manuscript. Why is that important? Because the the bigger space you have, the more opportunity is there for you to write in stuff and to create mythology in it. And so, So how does the Bible stack up against other ancient literature? Well, let's look at it right now. We got on the screen there a chart that we can see. You got the first one there. We've got Plato. You guys heard of Plato? Not Plato, which that's great too. But Plato, right? And he wrote the Republic, and, and he wrote it around uh, 427 to 347 BC. You see, the earliest copy we have of that is 1,200 years later. How many copies? Seven copies. We have the next guy, Herodotus, he's a historian, he was around the time of Socrates, and we see 1,300 years is the earliest copy we have of his writings, and eight of them. We have this, this historian, I'm gonna try to say his name, Thucydides, okay, what, he's, a, he's a Greek historian, we've got his writing, 1,300 years later, we have his earliest manuscript, and only eight copies of those. We have Caesar, and the Gaelic Wars, 1,000 years, after they happen. We have 10 copies. Next, we have Homer's Iliad. 500 years span between the original and the manuscripts. We have more of those. Oh, sorry, did I miss Aristotle? 49 years, okay. There you go, Aristotle 49. Homer's Iliad, 647 years. We've got a lot more copies of Homer's Iliad. Well, well, let's look at the Greek New Testament. Earliest copy, 30 years. Number of copies, 5,800. Think about that. Think about the difference you see there. I mean, compared to all these other ancient manuscripts, which no historian, everyone accepts them. No, those are reliable, man. Yeah, Homer's Iliad. We know we've got original Homer's Iliad. We know that's what it is. Yeah, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, that's what it is. Yeah, all these other, yeah, that's history. We can rely on that. Then the New Testament comes along and trumps them all. Now, what's it mean? It means this. If you're going to come and say, listen, I don't think the New Testament is actually very reliable, then, then logically, logically, you have to throw all the other ones away too because they don't even come close. The question you have to ask is, is it unreasonable to deny the authenticity of these accounts? Now, secondly, look, look at the time difference. Not, not just the, the amount. There's so many of them, but you also see the, the time differences between them. It, 30 years is too early. It's too quick for you to make up a myth. I mean, That's the earliest manuscript. They have a, a fragment of the book of John 30 years after. Some of the gospel accounts may have been written 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So these manuscripts are coming 30 to 100 years later. So here's the thing. Too early for myth to enter in. Why is that? I mean, if I want to make up a legend, I got to wait for all the eyewitnesses to be dead. Otherwise, you can, you can go verify if what I'm saying is true. And I, I'm making stuff up. That's not true. I was there. That didn't happen. But, but the New Testament written so close to the accounts. I mean, think about it. Think about 30 years ago. Think about 1985. For some of you weren't born then, but others, you can remember 1985, right? You remember? Nintendo kicks off. Huh? The new Coke was introduced. Remember new Coke? And It failed. It, it, it was 1985 where, where we we're hearing so much about the humanitarian crisis in Africa, so all the rock stars got together and they sang, We Are the World, great song, right? We can all sing that later, right? We are the world, we are the children. Right? Back to the Future was in theaters. So I, I'm saying all this, and those of you old enough, you're like having these warm, fuzzy memories, right? I was in high school, they weren't warm and fuzzy, they were horrible. Now, compare 1985 to the original, to the, to the other documents that are thousands of years removed. When you read the New Testament, it's like, oh yeah, remember Back to the Future? So, so when Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says as he says, hey, hey, Jesus died, he rose again, and at one time he appeared to 500 people, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, go ask them, they'll tell you about it. It's like new Coke. What's that? Maybe you're like too young. You know what's this new Coke thing? Go ask somebody over forty. They'll tell you about new Coke and how it burned. Kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Mark writes in his gospel that five thousand people are fed. Listen, listen. If he was making this up, and you're from that town, you'd be going, "That didn't happen. I was there." You couldn't write a lie in a public document when people are still alive to disprove it and expect that document to gain any traction. You couldn't write that. You couldn't write the crazy details they write in the Gospels. I mean, I read through the Gospels. I'm sometimes, like, asking, why would you put that in there? Like, Mark's writing in his Gospel. It says in Mark 15, he says, "...the Roman soldiers made Simon of Cyrene carry Jesus' cross, and he was the father of Rufus and Alexander." Like, Rufus, who cares about Rufus and Alexander? Well, well, listen, if you're making up a story, you don't care, but if you're writing history, you care, why? Because I can go and I go, hey, hey, anybody know Rufus and Alexander? Yeah, yeah they were the sons of Simon, of Cyrene. Hey, did you hear what he did? That's why C.S. Lewis, when he was an atheist, and he, he was a, a brilliant scholar and, and expert in, in mythology, and as he's a professor teaching mythology, he grabs the Bible and he says, This is when I started reading it, I, I realized something very quickly. It doesn't read like mythology. And he goes, I know mythology. He goes, it read like history. C.S. Lewis gave his life to Christ. Nelson Gluck, who's a, a famous archaeologist, he, he said this about the reliability of the Bible. He said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. So it's 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 historically accurate. But then you start to think not just historically accurate look at what they actually wrote down. If I'm going to write a story and I want to create a religion because I want to gain power there's a lot of stuff I wouldn't put in the story. I wouldn't put Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane crying out saying I don't want to be crucified. Like, if that's our Messiah, like, no, he looks weak there. Take that out. On every page, read through the Gospels, on just about every page, the key leaders of the early church, the disciples, they're doughheads, like on every second page, right? Just these regular guys following a guy who claims to be God. You read through the Gospels, and so often women are the heroes of stories. It's, it's the crucifixion and the resurrection. The resurrection is like the linchpin of this whole thing. If that thing falls apart, we've got nothing. And so what do they do? They write about what happened at the resurrection. Who are the first witnesses of the resurrection? Women. You wouldn't put that in there if you wrote that. Here's why. In that culture, women weren't even recognized as credible witnesses in a court of law. If you're going to make this thing up, you're like, oh, let, let, let's put in like the high priest in there. Hey, let's put in that, that, that really awesome official and, and he'll, then they'll, they'll believe it because he's the first witness. gonna hope we see as we read this, as we hear this, I think it takes more faith to disbelieve the Bible than it takes to believe it. But here's the, real tr- here's the tough question you need to ask. I mean, you can come through all of that and go, okay, I get it logically and reasonably. I can believe that this is a true book. I can believe that it's historically accurate. I can believe that it was eyewitness accounts, but here's where we have to ask the last question is this. Can I trust its truth claims? I mean, can I trust what it says about truth? I mean, all that sounds good, but I, I can't get past some of the stuff the Bible talks about. Do you ever think that Do you ever read the Bible and go, oh, I wish it didn't say that? Like, like the, culturally, there are things that rub us the wrong way when we read the Bible. There are. Like, you don't need to hide from that. Like, man, that, that just doesn't, that's just, man, I, there's something going on here. And I, I, I mean, think about slavery. You read about slavery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Like, man, what's going on there? I mean, God doesn't really seem to come down heavy on it. I mean, I mean, Paul does in the New Testament starts talking about how he's not a huge fan. I mean, he, he just starts to push away from it, but, and here's what we're doing. We take our culture and we overlay it over top of scripture, and when we hear slavery, we think new world slavery. We think the African slavery. And what we recognize and we go, man, that's just awful, and that is awful. But you read through the Bible, you start to realize, wait a minute, God's word actually condemns that kind of slavery, condemns kidnapping, condemns mistreatment, condemns having slavery based on race or culture. In fact, when you read through the Old Testament, New Testament, it's more like this this indentured servant, where where servants are, there's only served for a time, they're given opportunities. I mean, you read about Joseph comes as a slave. What happens to Joseph? He becomes like second in command over Egypt. That's not happening in, in our cultural understanding of what happened most recently with slavery. Right, Daniel comes in, and Daniel becomes one of uh, a big, uh, a respected leader, uh, a high-ranking official. So maybe, maybe we need to step and go, well, what is really happening here? What does God's word really say? Or, or maybe you look at something like polygamy. You ever read the Old Testament and think, man, what is going on there? These guys had so many wives. It certainly records it a lot in the Old Testament. But one theologian, Robert Alter, he's a Jewish Old Testament scholar. He teaches at Berkeley. He wrote this book called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he says, he says Here, there are two things that were absolutely pervasive in ancient culture that the Old Testament was written from one was polygamy, the other was, was primogeniture, which means the, the firstborn gets everything. And what you see as you read through the Old Testament, what do you see? You see, every time you see polygamy, it's a train wreck. The families are destroyed, it's just awful, it never works well. I was gonna say something about having more than one wife, but I will not, all right? How difficult that would be, okay? I just said it, anyway, right? (laughs) So you see all through scripture that, that God is pressing against that. And saying, it's not good. Then you well, what about this idea of the firstborn getting everything? You see, read all through the Old Testament and over and over again, God's subverting that, reversing that. And he chooses Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. God steps into the culture that's happening and he begins to undo what was unjust. Now, there are other things we may read in Scripture. Okay, I get that. Maybe that's just a, a, a thing I just misread. But what about the things that just seem so outdated? I mean, we read in our culture today, we're Canadians in, 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 our, in 2016, and we read something like, you know, love your enemies. And we're like, man, yeah, that's good. That's, we should love our enemies. I'm going to take that. That makes sense. I can preach that loud and clear from the street corner. But then all of a sudden we read sex is only for marriage. Like, man, that's so dated. Dude, like it's, no, it's 2016. Like, we could throw that part out, right? Because our culture would say that. Take those same two truths from God's word. Take them to Saudi Arabia. They'd love the sex part. In fact, they'd probably think, man, the Bible's way too too lenient about it. But love my enemies? Are you kidding me? And you say something about Muhammad, you're going to die. So so which culture is right? Which culture do we base our lives on? I mean, maybe we need to look at God's word and our culture at times and say, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe my culture's wrong. I mean, if if God really is God, shouldn't he confront us every now and again? Shouldn't what he says come up against and and, kind of bother us sometimes? Because listen, if you read the Bible and nothing ever bothers you about God, you may have made up your own God. I mean, I I read this book, and there are days it really bugs me. Why? Because it pushes over my little kingdom. Uh, I'm not so troubled by the things in God's word that I don't quite understand. I'm more troubled by the things that I understand very clearly, right? The Bible comes in and it starts to explain things. It starts to call me out. It starts to explain my experience. I mean, man, it's starting to make sense of what's going on in my world. And and sometimes I love it. Sometimes it gives me deeper meaning to to pain and suffering. Sometimes as you sit and look at creation before you, there's a deeper joy you have just in the, beyond even the man that looks beautiful, but you, you recognize a creator behind it. But it also pushes at my heart and my little ideas of what I want to have happen. And so think about our culture and think about Scripture. What do you want as your foundation for life? Do I want to base my foundation for something that in 20 years will change again? I mean, it's a shifting, sandy foundation. And I think about it this way. Think about your grandparents. Think about the stuff that, that, that they totally based their life on. Think about their culture. I mean, I think about my great-grandmother, and, and because she was only four feet tall and spoke in a very strong Scottish accent, some of the most offensive things she would say, you would kind of, I think she said that. Like, you, like taking like, like, the whole idea of like politically correct has just gone like way out the window, but you're four feet tall, and you have a cool accent, so I think we can, like, my grandparents, the stuff that my grandparents would believe... My grandparents had this, they grew up in church, a very strict church. I mean, they, you, you couldn't play cards. You could play rook. Apparently rook's okay. But once you move into these other cards, they're straight from hell. You can't, you, you can't do that, right? You, you, have to, you have to come to church in a suit because if you don't, something's wrong with you. And so I would show up at Christmas with long hair, tattoos, earrings, telling them I'm a vegetarian. How did that go over, right? <laughs> Not great. Listen, your grandparents, that's you in 30 or 40 years. Where your grandkids are gonna look at you and go, What? I can't believe you believe that. Are, Are we gonna place culture as our foundation for life? This culture that's changing, that's fickle? Or are we gonna place culture under God's word and say, God, your word is my foundation. This is what I stand on a never changing word. Really, here's the, the question we need to ask about, about God's Word and its claim of truth. Verse 16 of 2 Peter, he says, I, I'm telling you this to make known about Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate truth of Scripture this morning, and I want us to, to grab a hold of we forget everything else, listen, Scripture's all pointing to Jesus. Remember those guys Jesus was walking with and they were discouraged and Jesus hey, hey, don't you read the prophets? Don't you understand what scripture was pointing to? And he says this in Luke 24, 26, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus was saying, this whole thing's about me. I would challenge you, if you've never read God's Word, start reading one of the Gospels. Grab the Gospel of Luke, read it through, and start looking at who Jesus is, because that's what this is all about. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, do you know the first scroll they went to look at, they wanted to check out what it looked like, was Isaiah 53. Why is that? Isaiah 53 was this clear prophecy of the coming Messiah. It spoke so clearly about Jesus. And so if you were a skeptic, you would say, man, they made that up after Jesus came. And they fit it in. So they find these Dead Sea Scrolls written thousands of years. 200 years before Christ even came on the scene. They take out the Isaiah 53 and they read and say, it's exactly the same. The Bible points to Jesus. It's not about you and me. So so when you read the Old Testament, you read through the Ten Commandments, you're like, man, I can't do that. I can't live up to those Ten Commandments. I'm gonna fail at those. You're right, because it's not about you. The Bible was written to point us to Jesus. It's not about what we do so the God of the universe will love us. It's all pointing to the fact of what he did because he loves us. The heroes in the word aren't there for us to emulate You need to be a good leader like Moses. Really? Because Moses killed a man. A better Moses came. Jesus came to deliver us from the slavery of sin and death. We need to be strong and faithful like Noah. Really? The same Noah who once he got off the ark, got drunk and naked right away? There There was a better Noah who came to rescue us from the flood of God's judgment You need to read the Bible and see it's not about you. It's pointing to Jesus. In Exodus, they're told, kill this lamb. God says, kill this perfect lamb. Rub its blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death will pass over you. Now, God's not saying that every one of us needs to go get a little fluffy lamb and make that happen. It's all pointing to Jesus who comes when John sees Jesus for the first time. He says, behold the lamb of God. The lamb of lambs came so that his blood could be spilled. He could die in our place. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. If we start with all the rules of the Bible and try to do it on our own, you'll fail every time. I say this all the time. You don't clean yourself up to get to Christ. You come to Christ broken and messed up. And through his cross, he cleans you up transforms you, makes you new. And this changes everything. The early Christians were transformed by this truth. James, the half-brother of Jesus, they took him up onto the temple, the top of the temple, and they said, you need to stop talking about Jesus being God, that he's our salvation. If you don't, we're gonna throw you off the top of the temple, I'm telling you. As a half-brother of Jesus, all right? Mary's his mom. Okay, that's who his mom is, his mom is Mary. If, if, if one of my brothers came to me and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm punching him and telling him that he's, that he's crazy, right? So you've got a brother, a half-brother Jesus. He, he gets pushed off because he will not recant. Lands at the bottom, both his legs broken, still not dead. They come and they say, you need to stop talking about this. He says, I can't. I saw it. I know it's true. And they killed him. Peter, the one who's writing the, the verses that we we're just reading today, Peter was crucified upside down the day before his wife was put to death. And he said to his wife as they were leading her out, he said, beloved one, remember Christ. It transformed their lives. It transformed the early church so much so that they gave their lives to care for the broken, the hurting, they risked their lives. They put themselves in places where if they moved in to care for the sick and the dying, they would catch the disease and they too would die as they were loving on these people. Now why would you do that? Why would you do that for a made up myth? They did it because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead and they weren't afraid of death any longer. As the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, as we hammered out a lot of information, a lot of stuff that, that, that maybe seems academic, but my prayer is that, that God would move even right now, even as we close to sing. That God would move in on our hearts and and take the information and move it to transformation. That you could see Jesus. That through all of this, you could see what, what scripture is pointing to, that our hope for life, our foundation, our answer for the brokenness we see all around us, the brokenness we see in our own lives, all the striving in the world won't take care of it. My hope is this, that you can stand firm on this because you see Jesus. Because you see Jesus. Would you stand with me as I pray before we sing? <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord God, that we can have confidence in it, that we can read the gospels about you, Lord Jesus, and we can see this is for real. That we can see how reasonable it is, how logical it is to say, this really happened. But then, Lord, to add to that, God, that you build up in our hearts faith. To move beyond the, okay, Jesus was a real guy. To move to the place where we drop to our knees and say, it's so good to follow you, Jesus. To recognize I can't do this on my own. I can't bridge the gap between my sin and God's holiness. I I can't take care of the brokenness around me. I, I can't make sense of the universe that I see except that there's a creator. And that Jesus came to live the life that I could never live. He died in my place. He took my penalty, the judgment on my life for my sin. Rose again from the grave to give me his righteousness that I can be transformed, that this morning I leave here as a child of God. God, I pray that you would impress that on our hearts. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe this is the first time they've heard of this, God, that you would take the information, move it to transformation, begin to draw their hearts to you. Father, for those who are just doubting and and it's been hard and the, the foundation has been shaky, God, that they would come this morning and believe here saying it's so good to follow Jesus. It's so good to trust Jesus. My life has been transformed because of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.